Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Easter Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reablement practice. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is being recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. So on today's episode, we're going to be looking at some of the language and the terminology used in the diversity and inclusion space and hopefully provide some straightforward explanations, examples and definitions. So Dale, where would you recommend we start this conversation? Is there one area or terminology that is best to start? Hi, Lisa, and thanks everyone for joining us. I think the area that I tend to discuss first is around that idea of equity and equality. And the reason that I like to start here is really if we understand, I guess, the different principles of these two areas, then it gives us an opportunity to look at the other terminology, I think, in a greater depth and with a better perspective. So some people may be listening and thinking, is there actually a difference between equity and equality? And that's one of the reasons why I like to start in this place. So when we think about equality, often that is looked upon as something that we all want to aim for and what should be achieved. And in some situations, that's correct. However, when we look at the definition and defining what equality is, it's really about ensuring that individuals or groups are not treated differently. So the problem with equality is that it assumes that every one of us starts from the same position and that we have the same experiences as everyone else. And therefore, everyone should be treated the same. Whereas what we actually know is that treating everyone the same isn't always fair. So I guess that really brings us to equity, which is about fairness. And it's really about recognizing that disadvantage exists and finding solutions to the barriers, the behaviors, and the attitudes that create unequal outcomes or unequal situations. In order to be fair, it will be necessary to treat people differently. But what equity doesn't mean is we need to disadvantage anyone. All it's trying to do is create a level playing field. And one example that people might be familiar with is a picture of people trying to watch a sports match, maybe football or cricket. There's a very tall person, a person who is shorter, and then someone who is a wheelchair user. And there's a fence up in front of the game. An equality approach would be well, there's a tall fence here, so we need to give everyone a box so that they can see over the fence and enjoy the match. Now, what that means is that the tall person who can already see over the fence doesn't need the box. The shorter person receives the box and can see, but then the wheelchair user has a box that is not useful or appropriate for them. In an equity approach, the taller person doesn't need a box, so wouldn't receive one. The shorter person receives the box and the wheelchair user has access to a ramp in order to take them up to a height where they can see over the fence. As we can see from this example, equity is about ensuring that everyone can have access in a fair way, not that everyone gets the exact same service or intervention. And that's really the approach that we want to be taking within age, disability, healthcare settings and beyond. 
Thanks for that, Dale. I think those examples that you provide make it really clear what the difference is and why when working with people, we take an equity approach. It's really about highlighting the connections between equity and fairness. And I think that's also really important. So if we move on to diversity, I'm sure everyone's familiar with diversity. But how do you describe or what do you think are some of the key aspects that people need to be thinking about? Yeah, diversity is a word that we use probably on a daily basis now, and there's a lot more attention and focus on it. And that's a really positive thing. As long as we're looking and seeing diversity through a similar type of perspective, I would say. So for me, I think diversity describes who we are, what's important to us, and it helps shape our identity. So within diversity, there are different characteristics. These could be personal characteristics such as our age, our gender identity, our culture, our ethnicity, the languages we speak, and a whole range of other personal characteristics. There's also our values and beliefs. So these are the things that are sort of shaping our opinions, our experiences, and they could be connected to our political ideology, our religion and faith, or other views or opinions. We also then have our experiences, such as our financial and living situations, our social connectedness, and other types of experiences that we've gone through and we live with into today. So these are the types of things that really shape our diversity. And I think the other important, really key aspect is that diversity is a fact. It exists. And in order to benefit from diversity, we need to see it as a strength and support its inclusion within our workplaces, our services, and our communities as a whole. Thanks, Dale. That really provides a great segue into the next term that we want to talk about, which is inclusion. And I think most people have a kind of pretty good sense of what it feels like to be included or perhaps excluded for something. But you also mentioned that you only benefit from people's diversity if inclusion is supported. So why is this so important? And what else do people need to know about inclusion beyond that feeling? Thanks, Lisa. And I really like the way that you've kind of talked about that there, because we do all know a lot about inclusion and exclusion from our own personal experiences. And I think what we want to do is then think about how those personal experiences can also be felt by others as well. When we talk about inclusion, we often think about it being the positive actions that we take to help everyone and all groups in society participate and be represented in all the different areas. So inclusion is where we have environments that are welcoming and where people feel comfortable, empowered and supported to be themselves. So I think the other really important thing when we're talking about removing barriers is that it should then address power and privilege imbalances and lead to culture change. So that culture change that we're really looking for is one where people feel that they belong, that they can contribute. And that's when we know that the work that we're doing around inclusion is working. So you've said that the next step along from inclusion is for each person to have a sense of belonging. 
And this is kind of terminology that is being used more frequently now. So can you talk us through what it looks like and why that sense of belonging is important for organisations? So similar to what we were talking about under the inclusion title, we know when we feel that we belong and that's a great feeling. We also know what it feels like when we feel out of place or we feel that we don't belong. So I'd encourage everyone to actually think about that for a moment, a time when you felt that you didn't belong and it is not a good feeling. And if that's the sense that we have when we go to work or when we're using services, it's very unlikely that we're going to be able to get the best either out of ourselves or out of the environment and the situation. So a sense of belonging will come from the inclusion work we do if it's being done well. It should create that sense of comfort. It should create an ability of change. So if inclusion is about opening the door and removing the barriers, we know that that's a great start, but there's more to do. And that's where belonging really comes in. And we talk about belonging as being an emotional outcome that's connected to staff, client and volunteer satisfaction. So it's not enough for organisations to open the door and invite people in, which is what we would say inclusion work is about. Belonging is where people feel that they have a voice and that their opinions and views are listened to. In our resource, Connecting the Pieces, we talk about the concept of celebrate, not tolerate. And we have done a podcast on this previously, so you may want to go back and have a listen to that if you haven't done so before. And the reason that I mentioned this approach is that it's all about creating an environment where people feel that they belong. So if we celebrate people, their diversity, and see it as a strength for them, the organization and society, that's how we create that emotional connection that is associated with belonging. There's some really great points there, Dale. And I think adding belonging to the conversation is really important because if staff or volunteers and clients feel comfortable and feel that they actually belong, then it's really an indication that our inclusion approach is actually working and achieving the results that we're seeking. The alternative, of course, is that we have inclusion activities or initiatives within organisations that are actually meant to open the doors or remove barriers, but perhaps they miss the mark. I think that's right, Lisa. And where we could potentially see this is identifying a community or a group that isn't in our service, that is underrepresented. And therefore, we do a whole range of engagement activities to understand what the barriers are. And we remove those barriers and we get them to the front door, we get them in the service. But if we haven't done any work around thinking about how that service needs to be delivered differently, how to train and educate our staff to support diversity and difference, then the service probably isn't going to be able to respond to their needs and they won't feel that sense of belonging. So we may have done some of the inclusion work, but none of the work that will get us to the point of belonging. Yeah, great point, Dale. I think we want to ensure that the work that we're doing is meaningful and hitting the mark. So the final bit of terminology that I wanted to discuss today is around intersectionality. And I know that there's a lot to cover. So where do we start with this? Yes, you're absolutely right, Lisa. There is a lot to cover 
around intersectionality, but it doesn't mean that it's out of reach in regards to the type of work that we do or something that we shouldn't cover. So when I first start talking about intersectionality, I think the most important thing to do is acknowledge that Kimberly Crenshaw developed the term and the framework for intersectionality. And I think sometimes understanding the history of where it comes from is really the first and most important key. So intersectionality really shows how people can experience unearned privilege or unearned disadvantage because of the makeup and intersections of their diversity. So Crenshaw really developed the term to explain her own experiences as an African-American woman and the experiences of other people of colour who were being ignored by governments, laws, educations and workplaces. So Crenshaw has been an academic, a activist, a feminist, and she was noticing that discussions around women's rights and feminist issues were always centred on the lives and the experiences of white women. And these were mostly white, middle-class, non-disabled women. And their experiences were very different from women of colour, women living with a disability, and women experiencing financial hardship. So Kimberly Crenshaw started to look at where these multiple layers of disadvantage could be experienced. And fueling her passion was a history of examples where discrimination and inequality were being experienced because of people and their combined identities. So do you have an example perhaps of how that might have played out? Yeah, absolutely. So there's one case from the 1970s that Kimberly Crenshaw has written about where five African-American women claimed they were being denied employment opportunities by General Motors because they were Black women and wanted to bring a case of discrimination on the grounds of race and gender. So they said that women were employed in the office in secretarial positions but these were only offered to white women. And on the other hand, there were African-American men employed in the factory, but the factory didn't employ women to work in these manual labor roles. So they wanted to bring a case around discrimination on the basis of gender and race, not one, not the other. Now, at the time, the court refused to look at their case as a combined issue and found that because women were employed, there was no discrimination on the basis of gender. And because African-American men were employed in the factory, there was no race discrimination. So unfortunately, their case was dismissed. What we can actually really see happening is that the intersections of race and gender were being impacted here. So this is one example that inspired Crenshaw to describe how people were systematically denied privilege by governments, organisations and structures because of their intersecting identities. Thanks, Dale. I think that's a really great example that Crenshaw drew upon to support her work around intersectionality and to help us understand what it actually means in a real world. So I wanted to just move on to discuss what are some of the key aspects of intersectionality and where might people go wrong when they're working within that space? I think that's a great question and I love that we're 
delving a bit deep into intersectionality in this way. So for me, intersectionality is about identifying and acknowledging where power and privilege lives. That can be structural powers, such as the roles that government play in creating policies and procedures that can have a disproportionate effect on people. It can be policies that are enacted within organisations, and it can be our own individual privileges that we gain just for who we are or our own unearned disadvantages again, dependent on our diversity characteristics. So really, the key aspects of intersectionality is that it describes how people's multiple and intersecting identities relate to systems and structures of oppression, discrimination, power, and control. And I think if we're not discussing intersectionality with this in mind, we are missing the point. And I think that's what, unfortunately, can happen in some of the discussions and some of the ways that I've seen intersectionality being discussed. It can unfortunately, and I think unintentionally, get watered down to just thinking about an individual and thinking about them having multiple diversity characteristics. While that is one aspect of it, absolutely, we want to think about everyone's unique and different diversity characteristics. But what we really need to do is think about how those pieces connect together and whether that creates any form of barriers, whether it creates any unearned privilege or disadvantage for individuals, and what we can do within our role, within our organisations, to remove those barriers and to dismantle that inequality. So really, as I was saying, if we're not talking about intersectionality and power imbalances, then we really have a problem. And I think that's something that we can continue to bring ourselves back to. So for anyone wondering why intersectionality is important or perhaps how it might impact our inclusion and belonging work, what would you say to them? I think firstly, if they're asking that question, I'm so pleased to see that level of critical thinking. And I hope that people are wanting to ask questions because that's how we understand and learn more. And I think it's the right question to ask. We don't want people to just blindly sort of follow along and say, oh, intersectionality, yeah, that's a big issue. Yes, I I think that's important. We want people to question why and how it's important because that's how we can really see change being made. I guess what my answer would be is if we really are committed to having that equitable model that addresses individual needs and concerns and and really wants to create a level playing field and create an environment where fairness is the thing that we value most, then we want to be challenging and dismantling our policies, our processes, and even our own views. And we want to approach that hopefully without fear, because it can be scary sometimes to challenge our own thinking, because no one wants to admit or acknowledge that there could be some underlying bias, or that in some way, a process or a policy that we've been a part of, or supported by, has meant that other people are disadvantaged. If we're wanting to be a sophisticated organisation, and sophisticated in our own practice, 
we really do want to provide that critical lens and acknowledge that there are areas to improve and problems to overcome in our teams, in our organization, and even in ourselves. And if we open ourselves and our organizations up to this critical review and to change, hopefully we can be less defensive and move forward in a progressive way. Thanks, Dale. I think that's really great advice. And we would really encourage providers to apply a critical lens to influence the way that they actually work with clients and consider the intersectionality of the people that they're working with. So Dale, you and I have spoken often about how important it is that people get their head around the terms and the definitions that we've been discussing today, and particularly for those people who work in the aged care sector. So to finish off, can you give us perhaps some insights into how understanding these terms can contribute to their work and importantly, to better outcomes for older people who might be accessing their services? Thanks, Lisa. Before I go into that, if there's anyone listening who may be a little overwhelmed by some of the terminology and the new language that we're talking about, you're probably not alone. Sometimes terminology can seem a little bit complex and a little bit out of reach. If we were to boil down all of what we're talking about today, for me, it's about fairness. It's about understanding who someone is, what's important to them, and what they want out of life. And especially around intersectionality, it's about the power and privilege. Who has it? Who doesn't? And why is that the case? So even if the terminology flies out of our heads after today or seems a little bit out of reach, I think those concepts of who has power, who doesn't, is this equitable, is it fair, is something that can really stick with everyone. And I think the connection with the work that aged care providers and people working in health and disability, they all want to deliver a service that responds to the person, ensures that the person has the best outcomes, can live the best life, can access services that meets their needs, their wants, and their interests. And we're seeing changes within the aged care sector around how it's governed and legislated. There will be a new aged care act that is going to be a human rights-based approach. And that will all be about the individual, and all of the things that we're talking about here. And I really hope that at the core of that act, it's being developed around the idea and the concept of intersectionality, of understanding power, removing barriers, reducing unequal outcomes so that everyone has an ability to live an equitable, inclusive, free life. And we'll see that play out for providers in how the new aged care quality standards are written also. There is a strong focus on the individual, on who they are, their diversity, and what's important to them. So if providers can take what we've been talking about in this podcast to their approach to continuous improvement through those standards, I think that's really where the connections can be made and how real positive change and outcomes can be achieved for individuals. Thanks, Dale. As usual, your wisdom and understanding of this space is really great. And thanks a lot for chatting today. And we'll see you all next time. 
Thanks, Lisa. If our listeners today are interested, you can access our diversity and wellness resources at the Eastern Sector Development Team website at www.esdt.com.au. The Eastern Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government, Department of Health, and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the materials and comments made does not necessarily represent the views or the policies of the Australian Government.